Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we like to begin our show with a prayer, and we will be praying the Angelus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Spirit. Hail Hail Mary, Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Hail Mary, Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the Word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. Hail Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. The Feast of the Transfiguration leads this week's episode of Truth and Charity. Here, Bishop unpack this luminous mystery that offered Peter, James, and John a glimpse of Jesus' divine glory. Then it's on to the Memorial of Blessed Solanus Casey, Bishop's upcoming visit with Pope Francis, and a new website launched by the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. The show wraps up with Bishop answering questions submitted by listeners. To submit your question for a future show, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, here with our good bishop. Thanks for being here again. You're welcome, Kyle. We recently saw you at our Viva Bocce Classic up in <laughs> South Bend. You were able to make it. Uh, I, you brought in... Some uh, professionals, I think, <laughs> some foreign professionals. Yeah, a family was visiting you from Spain. Just kind of a coincidence, was it? It was a coincidence. Yeah. This family, good friends of mine, and actually they came for me to confirm their two teenage children, which I did at the mother house of the Sisters of St. Francis. Uh-huh. It was a beautiful mass, and uh, the sisters sang, and they had a real nice lunch for them afterwards with a cake. Uh-huh. But it was a week vacation. They were visiting me for a week, so we we did a lot of fun things. We were in Chicago when I picked them up at O'Hare Airport. We went to a Cubs game. Uh-huh. By the way, the Cubs are now my favorite National League team. Oh, okay. Who yeah. were they before? I didn't have a favorite National oh, League team right. before. <laughs> but now, now it's Cubs. Because <laughs> Yankees are my favorite team in their American League. So so it was really funny <laughs> trying to explain baseball to them oh, in okay. Spanish. Yeah. Like hits and balls and uh-huh. outs, you know, right. trying to think of what word in Spanish <laughs> would fit the different things. Um, but they really enjoyed it. And um, we actually went to a Tin Caps game, too, their last night here in <laughs> Fort right. Wayne. But it was a great week together. And um, we were actually, I, sh- I gave them a tour at Notre Dame. And 
Liverpool was there practicing. We were able to go to the soccer sure. team. And of course, that was a big deal for them because Liverpool are the European champions. And yeah. so I don't really follow soccer, but, huh. you know, so that was, that was neat. There was a lot of other activities. It was, it was really a lot of fun. Yeah. So how did you originally get to know them? Well, the father was an exchange student when I was pastor in Harrisburg. And <laughs> because of the Spanish, he came down uh, for mass and confession to me at St. Francis Parish. Uh-huh. So all through the years, uh, he stayed in touch. He got married. His wife is... I visited them when I was in World Youth at World Youth Day in Madrid. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's really been like a 30-year yeah. Uh, relationships. So it was nice. This was the first time the whole family came to the United States. So so that was really neat. Uh-huh. So then they were your team for the Viva Bocce Classic. And if I remember right, I think Father Coonan's team beat you in the first round. Yes. I don't know if that was... Yeah, Father Terry Coonan. Yes, I was uh-huh. very upset. Uh-huh. I'm ready to transfer him now. <laughs> 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 no, he's a good athlete. But then you guys were able to get back in towards the end and I, ended I, up yeah. in the championship round. Exactly. How that happened, I don't know. It was either divine providence or someone paid for us I, to I, go. <laughs> <laughs> I, won't, I won't say my theories, but uh, yeah, so they ended up being your team versus the sisters. Yes. And I don't know if you let the sisters win. Is that? Yeah, I, I thought yeah. we should. <laughs> you know I'm a lot more competitive than that. No. Which but I, they were good. I need to practice, though. You yeah. Know. <laughs> Um, For but no, year. it was just a lot of fun. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. And I'm, I'm putting off talking about the little duel that we had right before the championship well, round. It was you versus me, a little truth and charity Yeah, match. Well, I was going to mention and, that yeah. because I think you should humbly share with the listeners who won. Well, uh, it was you, but I'll put an <laughs> asterisk beside because uh, I had not had any warm-ups. And you had been a couple games in by this point. Yeah. So I feel like that was a little... I don't think it would have helped, fair. Kyle. Okay. <laughs> You're probably right. <laughs> no, just all right, kidding. But, uh, thank you to all those that supported uh, Reading Radio in the Viva Bocce Classic in Fort Wayne and the one in South Bend. It was a lot of fun, and uh, it's also a great fundraiser for the station, so we appreciate all those that were able to support us. And then also wanted to talk a little bit about the transfiguration that we had the feast yesterday, uh, it was August 6th. And I, I do think we've talked a little bit about the transfiguration before, but I thought maybe you could give us a little bit of a, a recap on the transfiguration. I, I feel like it's one of those events that we hear about a lot, but not really sure what the implications of it are. Yeah. So maybe you could break that down. It's a, a beautiful, luminous mystery. You know, I think we did talk about it here on the show mm-hmm. because every second Sunday of Lent, the gospel is of the transfiguration. So okay. so we we do reflect on it during Lent, but also the actual feast is August 6th. It's just so much there in that event. I mean, it's really a manifestation of Jesus's glory, kind of ahead of time, you know, before he was actually rose from the dead. We have this, this, uh, this glimpse of of Jesus transfigured while he was praying on Mount Tabor. And of course, it was only three apostles who were there to see it, Peter, James, and John. Mm-hmm. And the gospel tells us that Jesus's face shone like the sun mm-hmm. and his clothing became dazzling white. So to have this glimpse 
of the divine glory of Jesus. What a remarkable experience it must have been, because really they were seeing the light of Christ's divinity. And then not only with their sight, they also heard with their ears the voice of God the Father, mm -hmm. who said at that moment, this is my chosen son, listen to him. Right. It's kind of like what he said at the baptism of Jesus, the voice of, Je of the Father was heard. But this time, he added those words, listen to him. Mm -hmm. He didn't say that at the baptism. So it was also a manifestation, really, of the Trinity. You know, like at the baptism of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove. But at the transfiguration, it's a cloud that mm -hmm. I think some will say that was symbolic of, of the Holy Spirit. The other thing is, of course, we have the appearance of Moses and Elijah. You know, Moses symbolizing the law and mm -hmm. Elijah the prophets. And there they, on, on, at the transfiguration, you have Moses and Elijah conversing with Jesus, who was about to go to accomplish his mission in Jerusalem. So really, they were talking about that. They were talking about our Lord's upcoming passion, death, and resurrection. Mm -hmm. So really, the idea of the Old Testament law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah, all of salvation history oriented to, to this new exodus, Christ's exodus from death to life, hmm. to the glory of heaven. We also read in that story how Peter wanted to set up three tents for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. I mean, this was such an incredible event. He wanted that moment to last, mm -hmm. but it wasn't going to because Jesus had to accomplish his mission. He had to descend Mount Tabor mm. and go up to Jerusalem to ascend another mountain, Calvary. So the new exodus was about to take place. And I think we can think about how this relates to our life. The Lord wants to take us up the mountain like he took Peter, James, and John, the mountain of prayer. He wants us to encounter him, to experience his love. And that's what it means to... So I always think of the transfiguration as a prayer event. Jesus went up the mountain to pray and took these apostles with him. And I think the idea is sometimes we can be too lazy to go up the mountain, you know, to climb. Yeah. And the Lord is inviting us to, to, to go up the mountain and to listen, like God the Father said, listen to him, to listen to Jesus, because that's what prayer is. And then we can have a glimpse of his glory sometimes when we receive an inspiration or a consolation when we pray. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not as dramatic as or remarkable like the transfiguration of Jesus, but but there there are those glimpses of the Lord that can happen. But then we always have to come down from the mountain too. We have to uh, come down the mountain, take up our cross with Jesus to share in his mission, to do his will. You know, sometimes we might want to stay on the mountain like Peter did, you know, because it's beautiful to spend time in prayer. But we have to descend. We have to go down to the plain, the valleys of our lives, to our families, our workplace, school, whatever, to bear the fruit of our experience in prayer, to, to live the gospel. Also reminds us of our own resurrection, that, you know, here Jesus is transfigured in glory and... Um, we believe that he will change our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body one day. But that road to glory always goes, uh, follows or passes through the way of the cross. Mm -hmm. And that means 
if we hope to arrive at that glory, we must take up our cross every day. Because ultimately, we want to go to that holy mountain, uh, which is heaven. And the way there is to listen to what God the Father said at the Transfiguration, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Mm -hmm. Somebody recently asked me how Peter knew that it was Elijah and Moses. Any idea on, on how, would, would they have maybe said something or would they have been visually recognizable as Elijah and Moses? I don't know. That's a good question. I never thought of that. I mean, the gospel itself says, I mean, like if you read Matthew, Mark, or Luke in their account, they say Jesus was conversing with Moses and Elijah. Mm -hmm. So that's how we know. But, but how did Peter know? I don't know. Yeah. Um, maybe, you know, sometimes in art you see Moses holding the tablets of the law. I mean, right. who knows? Yeah. And then with the whole, like, the dazzling white and the glowing this is something that happened to Moses as well, right? Did yeah. he come down and his face, he had to veil himself because yeah. everybody was kind of right. in awe by this? And Yeah, it's interesting to think about that. When he encountered God on Mount Sinai, he, he had gone up to Mount Sinai, but also Elijah on Mount Carmel. Oh, So okay. they had an intimate encounter with God. Huh. Uh, so I think that is interesting to think about Mount Sinai and Mount Carmel, now Mount Tabor, and then Mount Calvary. So we should probably be climbing mountains more often. That's right. Just but in it's case. hard in Indiana to That's find them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, another thing we recently celebrated, we've mentioned this before, the optional memorial of Blessed Solanus Casey, July 30th. And it's a special thing that we celebrate in our diocese because of his presence at the St. Felix Catholic Center in Huntington and during his lifetime. Uh, you're also going to be doing a mass there on August 17th, which is open to the public. It's a, a special mass for the sick that uh, I believe they do monthly. Yes. And, and yes. Um, you'll be celebrating that on August 17th. thought maybe you could share just a little bit about Father Solanus Casey and his connection with St. Felix, uh, as well as, um, is, is he a special intercessor for the sick? He is. I mean, I would say, you know, his special care for the sick and the poor. Uh, I, I spoke about that a couple years ago at the Chrism Mass as kind of an example for our priests, although he's an unusual example because he was a Capuchin, Franciscan priest, and he was beatified. But what was unusual is that he was not allowed to preach the homily at Mass or to hear confessions because uh, his superiors felt that he wasn't intellectually up to it, you know. So when he was ordained, he was in, ordained as what you call a simplex priest. We don't have that anymore. Mm -hmm. But back in those years, which was like uh, he was ordained in 1904, a man could be ordained as a simplex priest. Um, so he did not have the faculty of hearing confessions or preaching homilies. And of course, we think of those, they're ordinary responsible responsibilities of a parish priest. Mm -hmm. I guess he didn't do well enough in his seminary education. He must have had low grades or something. So he was really a humble doorkeeper. Um, 
you know, you'd think that must have been very humbly or humiliating, but he was obedient and he worked in parishes, but he did simple jobs. You know, he worked at different Capuchin parishes in New York and he would be the doorkeeper. He'd train altar boys. He'd serve as the sacristan, things like that. But because of his holiness, a lot of people were drawn to him. He was very compassionate. He was very wise, very, very patient. So people would come to him with their problems and he would listen to them. And the number of visitors uh, started to increase. People who had family problems or medical problems, financial problems. And then after he served in a few parishes in New York, he was back in Detroit at the St. Bonaventure Monastery and the same thing happened. And then as he got older and because so many people were coming to him, they decided to send him uh, to a place where it would be not as as busy or overwhelming. So they were they sent him to St. Felix Friary in Huntington. And even though he, he, he didn't hear confessions or preach the homily, he would talk to people and share with them God's love and mercy. Mm. Um, he would listen to them. And, uh, and then there were reports of healings through him. He'd get all kinds of prayer requests from people, and there were a lot of reported cases of healings. The superiors were concerned about his health because, you know, he'd see so many needy people and people who are hurting, so they tried to protect him from so many visitors, but that was that was hard, you know, because people wanted to go and see him, and he was always open to, to seeing people. You know, when he died, there were 20,000 people at his wake and his funeral. I mm. mean, it was incredible. He was 86 years old, and he's buried in Detroit, and I've never been to the place up in Detroit. I, I will really want to get there to visit his his tomb, but it's nice to be able to visit his room at St. Felix Friary because it's kind of left just as it was when he was alive. Yeah. And a lot of people have been going there to to see his room and to pray there. Yeah. All right. Well, for more on that, you can check out, I talked with the, the guys who are organizing the Pray With Father Solanas group. That was episode 724 of The Kyle Hyman Show. You can find that at kylehyman.com. And coming up, we'll talk about Bishop's Ad Limina visit with Pope Francis, a new website from the USCCB, and your questions right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services that save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and one of the things that we wanted to talk about is the Ad Limina visit with Pope Francis, which it's not for a little ways now, but really interesting because you've been doing the preparation for it. It's December 12th will be your visit, and this happens every five years, is it? It's supposed to happen every five years, but for a number of years now, because there's so many bishops in the world... It's taken longer. Okay. So it's really eight years since the last Ad Limina visit. 
all bishops are required to make the ad limina visit to go there to pray at the tombs of saints peter and paul in rome that's what ad limina means uh, it means at the threshold which means at the threshold of the of their graves and also to give a report uh, about our diocese to the pope while we're there we visit with a lot of different vatican offices officials like the congregation for catholic education the congregation for doctrine of the faith congregation for the clergy all these different groups and there's a nice discussion we can ask questions they might give us advice it's organized by regions so it's not all the u.s bishops at one time because there's too many of us so with a large country like the united states the bishops are divided in regions so indiana is part of region seven mm -hmm. so it'll be all the bishops of illinois wisconsin and indiana okay. so we'll be together when we visit the different vatican offices and when we visit with the pope pope mm -hmm. francis on december 12th i mean the, the visit itself is probably a week or maybe seven or eight days but the um, we only meet with the pope at least at this point on one of those days mm -hmm. when pope john paul had unlimited visits he would have a lot more interactions with the bishop he would meet with them individually for each for 15 minutes he uh -huh. would he would have mass with them he'd have them for lunch all of that now it's it's hmm. just basically one meeting with the pope as a group as, not, as a nothing group. individual right right i think when we were there you know when i was there when we visited with pope benedict in 2011 he met with groups just by state so it wasn't the whole region we had just the bishops of indiana okay with him so i don't know how pope francis is going to do that if he's mm -hmm. just going to meet with just the bishops of indiana or the bishops of the whole region so that remains to be seen mm -hmm. and of course the report i've already submitted to the vatican it's called the quinquennial report and again that quinquennial means five years but mm -hmm. it's actually a, a report that i give him about the diocese between january 1st 2011 and december 31st 2018. Okay. so there's 20 23 or 24 sections or topics that we have to cover in the quinquennial report um huh. like one of the sections is basically the pastoral and administrative organization of the diocese we give a lot of statistics on the number of catholics and number of parishes all that another chapter is on the ministry of the bishop so i write about basically about my ministry here through those eight years you know pointing out certain highlights of of those years of my ministry as bishop but then we have to report on on various topics like there's one section is on the liturgical and sacramental life of the bishop so i don't write all this myself you know some of our office leaders directors and that helped me in preparing this a lot of it so for example that section brian mcmichael wrote and okay. i could add things we <clears throat> report how many baptisms we've had in those eight years how many first communions how many confirmations hmm. marriages etc we look at different challenges that there might be you know you know there's fewer marriages across the united states mm -hmm. fewer marriages in the church so write about that and how we're trying to you know improve that we have chapters on catholic education in the diocese on vocations uh -huh. um, 
I have to report on the Catholic colleges and universities in the diocese, the religious congregations in the diocese, both of religious sisters and brothers and religious priests, catechesis in the diocese. So you get an idea. I mean, it's, it's, it's really everything. Ecumenism, about other religions besides Christians in the diocese. Oh, another chapter is on the pastoral care of the family, hmm. evangelization of culture, communications public relations, all these things are there, you know, the media. Then it also looks at, uh, we have to do a section on social justice and the social teachings of the church in our diocese. So I report on a lot of things there, everything that the Indiana Catholic Conference does and all the good organizations in our diocese, like, like the Christ Child Society and uh, certainly Catholic Charities, the St. Vincent de Paul Societies, the Women's Care Centers. There's a section on pastoral care of migrants and itinerants, and a section on the financial state of the diocese, another section on the evangelizing efforts, youth ministry. It kind of concludes with a general assessment and our my outlook for the future. Okay. So it's a very comprehensive yeah. thing. It takes a lot of work. What will happen is the different chapters will be like distributed to the different Roman congregations or offices. Oh, okay. So the office that deals with evangelization catechesis, okay, so they'll read the chapter from the diocese on that. So they'll already be prepped sure. before we're there to see what's going on here. Uh -huh. And they might have things that they want to discuss or also an opportunity for me to ask questions of the Vatican, various Vatican officials. So how many pages do you suppose that is? Um, uh, this is not as long as the last one for some reason. Uh -huh. I mean, it's certainly over 100 pages, uh -huh. uh, but I haven't really added them up. <laughs> and anything that came back, whether it be statistics or kind of in your probing of the diocese that you were surprised, excited about, something particular that you saw a, a little hole that we want to Yeah, I would on? say both. You know, I think it's a good exercise because it sure. has us sit back and see, you know. I One thing that's, um, I'd say, a challenge that I see is, is really the ongoing decline. This goes way beyond eight years, but it's been an ongoing decline in the number of marriages. Yeah. And that's obviously, that's a nationwide sure. problem. Um, also, some decline in number of infant baptisms. Mm. Uh, that surprised me. But I think it does show that um, because the, the, the population of our diocese has been pretty stable, um, but it shows that... The Catholic population yeah, specifically? Yeah, Catholic population. However, it does show that there's some decline in sacramental practice. And, but I noticed that in comparison to other dioceses in the region... Ours is at less of a decline, so I guess that's good news, mm. but I don't like seeing a decline. Sure. Sure. One of our priorities already is the formation of our, our young adults in the faith, mm -hmm. because that's where that's the, they're the ones having children. Right. But as we know from all the statistics, there's the rise of those who are uh, religious nuns, uh, you know, the, who are not affiliating with any religion, and including Catholics who, as they grow into young adulthood, stop practicing the faith or whatever. So, so that's like, I think the number one challenge and I, but I already knew that and we've been working sure. really hard on that issue. Um, but there's many signs of hope as well. 
we see, I would say, more zeal and vigor. I, I guess I would call it, if there's, though some smaller numbers, increased zeal among those who are active, mm -hmm. which is an interesting phenomenon. So greater commitment on the part of, of those who, who are practicing. Yeah. Is it a decline in the lukewarm Catholics, do you think, and that the extremes are maybe getting higher? So less people or more people that are, are either not considering themselves Catholic and more people that are really dedicated Catholics and less of the kind of people in the middle that are yeah, iffy? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, there still are people in the middle who go to mass occasionally sure, and aren't sure. that dedicated. I mean, there's still a lot there. Yeah. But we see a growth in the number of those, like you said, who are really active. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. When you go for these visits and meeting with different people in Rome and eventually with the Pope, is that something that you get nervous about? or No, not really. No, I enjoy it because it really is a good opportunity for me to learn and yeah. to ask questions. So I'm not really nervous, no. Anything else that you'll be doing on that trip? Or I mean, Well, yeah. our seminarians, I, I hope to visit, and we have a priest over there now who was just ordained, Father Spencer St. Sure. Louis, but um, but also our seminarians studying at the North American College. You know, I hope to get to see them. Yeah. You know, maybe if I'm able to take them out for dinner one night, uh -huh. that will be good. And, and uh, you know, I, I hope there is a little free time that I can visit some of my favorite churches and just walk around. Yeah. Well, speaking of fellow bishops in this meeting, there's a, a website that was released by the USCCB called PreventionUSCCB.org. And it's a new resource aimed to educate people on the steps the church has taken and has, has taken and is taking to confront the abuse crisis. I was I just recently learned about this. Was this a actually a result of the meeting back in June, or is it kind of unrelated? Oh, it is a result of okay. the meeting. I think, um, uh, I mean, uh, what I think is good is it also includes highlights from the 2002 charter mm -hmm. for the protection of children and young people, because what we find is a lot of people don't know or don't realize how much the church has done to prevent sexual abuse, but also... You know, the charter shows what, what we're doing. But then really what the focus of our June meeting was, was the more recent crisis that we've dealt with, which has to do with abuse or negligence by bishops. So as I think a lot of listeners know, Pope Francis issued a document called You Are the Light of the World. It's mm -hmm. in Latin, Vos Estis Lux Mundi, which really basically... Um, deals with how to handle cases where bishops are accused. Mm -hmm. And so at the June meeting, we approved three documents related to reporting and investigating claims of abuse or the intentional mishandling of abuse cases by bishops. So one, of course, a lot of this came as a result of the Cardinal McCarrick mm -hmm. and Bishop Bransfield scandals. But one of the three documents deals with what we what to do with bishops who were, were removed from office or who resigned their office because of either abusing themselves or mishandling cases mm -hmm. intentionally. So, so that's what we call the protocols. So now we have protocols which weren't there before. For example, 
you know, some of these bishops, a couple, I mean, there's not a lot of these bishops, but there's just a few, but, right. but you know, can they attend meetings of the USCCB, mm. you know, things like that. So there's protocols now about those things. And another document is basically a reaffirmation of our commitments as bishops to really apply to ourselves the same high standards that we expect our priests and deacons and lay people mm-hmm. to follow when it comes to the whole area of of uh, of chastity etc and then the third document really deals with specifically with the reporting and investigation of complaints against bishops so we set up a because that was the thing like where did people bring their complaints there were complaints for example about bishop bransfield or about cardinal mccarrick who were they who was to investigate you Mm -hmm. know because they're a bishop they only report to the pope now there are clear procedures and and really as a result of pope francis's decision if there is a report or an accusation the metropolitan archbishop is to conduct the investigation and, uh, of course, with lay experts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that means, for example, if there was an accusation of a bishop in, in Indiana, it would be the Archbishop of Indianapolis mm-hmm. who would lead the investigation. The Vatican is immediately informed, et cetera. There's report to civil authorities, all the things we do in the case of accusations against priests. Mm-hmm. And if the archbishop is accused, then the senior suffragan bishop of that province is the one who would normally do the investigation. So, okay. for example, in Indiana, I'm the senior suffragan bishop. Oh, okay. It means I'm, I've been a bishop in Indiana longer than the bishops in Evansville or Gary or Lafayette. Oh, okay. sure. Those are the things that were accomplished really at the June meeting. They were really important because we needed to have a process. So I, I think it's important. Now, we already, you know, as far as reporting uh, to public authorities, this has already been our practice. But the Pope saying this should be done because in some countries it wasn't the practice mm-hmm. so or the policy. So, I mean, that's important, uh, calling the police. The Pope's document, the Modo Proprio Vos Estes, is really uh, the, the latest in a series of steps that the church has taken to respond to this crime of sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. We have already had, in the United States, a strict zero-tolerance policy that requiring priests and deacons who've committed child sexual abuse to be removed from ministry. And we've followed that. I've followed that very, very carefully and, and faithfully, the Dallas Charter. So... The new stuff doesn't replace that. I mean, that stays in in, in effect. Mm-hmm. But now it's it's important that we see that now there's a process to hold bishops accountable. Sure. Uh, so if a, what happens if a bishop isn't following the charter or isn't following the norms? There was no real process on how to handle that before. Now we have really a mandatory process for handling complaints against bishops uh, to how to investigate them. So I hope that's helpful for our mm-hmm. listeners. Um, I mean, this is an ongoing thing. Uh, it's something that, I mean, we just have to have the best means possible to rid the church of this terrible scourge. Mm-hmm. And we've got to be committed to it. If there is a report of misconduct or abuse by a bishop, you know, as I said, that could be made to the um, to the archbishop of that province Obviously, a person can always report it to civil authorities, but there's now a third-party system that we're creating. It's not up and running yet, but I think it will be soon. Okay. Uh, the third-party reporting system, it's like a hotline. That's another way that mm-hmm. persons could report 
Of course, there's always the danger of false accusations, but there would have to be in the investigation, just as we have now with the charter, if there's false accusations, there has to be an investigation to see if there's any credibility to the accusation because you don't want people's reputations to be destroyed mm -hmm. if they're innocent. Yeah. Sure. All right, well, people can check out that website again, preventionusccb.org. It's got a lot of information up there and some videos, and you can check it out, preventionusccb.org. And if you have a question for Bishop, you can ask it by going to redeemerradio.com slash askbishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, we have some questions about the extraordinary form of the Mass and more on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and I will be asking questions that you have submitted. Steve Moran from St. Charles Parish in Fort Wayne wrote, I'm curious of your thoughts on the extraordinary form of the Mass. Is there any possibility of making it more widely available in the diocese, particularly Fort Wayne? I currently am aware of it only being celebrated at Sacred Heart Parish in Fort Wayne. Thank you. Actually, the extraordinary form of the Mass uh, is is celebrated both at Sacred Heart in Fort Wayne and also at St. Stanislaus in South Bend. Mm -hmm. And both are Latin Mass parishes, mm -hmm. and they're, they are served by the priestly fraternity of St. Peter. So in those two parishes, they only celebrate the extraordinary form. And I think both parishes are doing well. But at this point, there's no pastoral need, really, for the extraordinary form in other places. I mean, that seems to be satisfying the need of people who would like to go to that form of the Mass, the old Latin Mass. If there were a, a bigger need, you know, we could expand it. But right now, it seems to be satisfying the need. All right. Someone asked, why do some priests touch their thumb and index finger during the Eucharistic prayer? You know, that, that's an interesting question after we just talked about the Latin Mass. Um, but before the uh, reform of the liturgy, before the Novus Ordo, which of course was promulgated, the ordinary form, mm -hmm. in 1970, there was a long time practice in the old Mass for a priest had to hold the tips of his index finger and thumb together on both hands after the consecration. Okay. And it was only after giving out communion and and putting the hosts back in the in the tabernacle that he'd wash his fingers and then he wouldn't keep the thumb and fourth uh, index finger together anymore. So really, the whole idea back then this is before I was way before I was ordained that the priest had touched the sacred body of Christ mm -hmm. with the tips of these fingers. So in order not uh, that no by chance some particles would be on the tips of the fingers that they wouldn't um, fall off. Mm -hmm. um, and after the fingers are purified, they rinse with water, then he would drink the water, you know, from the chalice. Mm -hmm. Then he would be able to touch other things. But he wouldn't be allowed to touch anything after the consecration until then. So the index finger and the thumb would be held together. Okay. Um, I mean, I don't know if priests still doing that today. Maybe there are a few who do that. Yeah. Okay. 
Well, you can ask your question by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we have questions about the seal of confession, liturgical living for families, and more coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and I'm asking the questions that you've submitted. One of our listeners asked, can you explain the seal of confession? Yes, it's the most uh, sacred, secret, most confidential thing. A priest may never reveal the content of a confession, cannot reveal uh, such and such a person committed such and such a sin. He would be uh, suspended from priestly ministry if he did. Um, I think maybe even excommunication might be mm-hmm. tied to that. I'd have to look that up. But but yeah, it's the most sacred seal. It's just between God and the priest and the penitent. So a priest may never, even if his life was threatened, cannot violate the seal of confession, the sacramental seal. If he was asked in the court of law under oath, would he say it never happened? What would, what would well, the just response take the be? the Fifth Amendment. Fifth, yeah, okay. so I can't answer that question. Okay. Even if we go to jail, he he can't answer that. Yeah. Another question submitted was, what are your top tips on liturgical living for families with small children? Oh, I love that question. There, I have a lot of tips I could give. Okay. I mean, there's, there's just so many things, but I have small children, so I'll take notes. Okay. Well, first of all, I'd say always celebrate the anniversaries of their baptism. Mm. You know, do something special, a special meal or dessert take out the baptismal candle, yeah. maybe on that day, the baptismal certificate, make it a day of celebration. It uh-huh. was their, the day of their new life in Christ. You know, that's uh, the day they became uh, members of the church. I mean, I think that's a great thing to do in a family. You know, make it as significant as their birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say also um, to observe liturgical feasts, I mean, and, and liturgical seasons. There's so many good books out there that you can read or get ideas, but I'll give some suggestions. I would celebrate particular saints and especially the names of your children and your own names. Like, you know, your family should celebrate the feast of St. Kyle. Mm-hmm. Which which saint is Kyle based on? I'm not I sure. I don't know. Oh, what's your middle name? Edward. Okay, we'll celebrate St. Edward. Yes. You know, and have that as a, a, a I've celebration. I've got a couple options with that one. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, you do. Only celebrate one of them, Kyle. You can okay. choose one. Oh, shoot. <laughs> it's but I think um, celebrate the Feast of Mary, the Immaculate Conception. These different solemnities, the the assumption, you can have maybe a family rosary, especially on those days, or mm-hmm. maybe put flowers at, if you have a statue or image of Mary in your home, celebrate those days. The liturgical seasons, Advent, you know, it's good to have an Advent calendar, maybe with your children. Sure. The Advent wreath, of course. Lent, you know, do things together as a family. Go to Stations of the Cross on Fridays. You can even have a family penance that you do together. Mm. Like, you know, decide, well, during Lent, we're not going to watch TV or we're right. going to limit TV or whatever. And then with special joy, celebrate days like uh, like Sunday, that they see Sunday as special. Maybe 
a special breakfast every Sunday or maybe special treats on Sunday, the day of the resurrection of the Lord, so that it's different. Mm -hmm. There's coloring books that have to do with saints and, and coloring books of different liturgical things, crafts you could do, special foods. Celebrate St. Nicholas Day. I mean, that's a great saint for, for children and tell them the story. Epiphany, the three kings, maybe little gifts for the children on, on the Feast of the Epiphany. Yeah. Um, I also think scripture is important. Uh, as you pray together, maybe on, all, on these feasts, use a children's Bible and read the story that they're going to hear at Mass so that they're going to understand it at their level. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'd say put a children's Bible at some place of prominence in your home. Or you might have some little other uh, religious icons or pictures, but that they know where the Bible is. Yeah. And maybe when you read from it, light a candle so they know that God's word is something that's sacred. And, uh, and they get excited about that. Oh, yeah, you're looking forward to it. Like, yeah, tomorrow's, you know, and then Holy Week, you know, you can do all kinds of things during Holy Week. But, and I think it's good to have children's religious books and children's videos Things like that. You can go to the Catholic bookstore in Fort Wayne, for example, or other Catholic bookstores, the Good Shepherd bookstore, mm-hmm. and you can get, you can find a lot of stuff for children, religious coloring books and things like that. And you could tie them in with a liturgical season. Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for those tips and all of the, the questions that you answered today. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you and with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Listen next week as Bishop talks about St. Maximilian Kolbe, the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and much more. If you have a question you'd like Bishop to answer on a future episode, submit it at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.